0: One of you beefy twats built a magician-proof dungeon. Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci Fi's *The Magicians*. And welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew. The Magician episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino.
2: I'm Christina Lomangino.
1: And today we bring magic back into our lives for episode two, The Wrath of the Time Bees.
2: Written by David Reed and directed by Chris Fisher, IMDb is giving this an 8.2. We have missing memories, getting closure, and changing time. We roughly follow three storylines throughout the course of this episode. We have Alice and Julia... Dealing with the golem issue.
1: We also have Julia starting to figure out how she could possibly learn more and perhaps predict the surges and which ones will be deadly.
2: We'll talk about that more too. I have a feeling that's going to be a series long arc. Mm -hmm. We saw it a little bit in the premiere and the slow build makes me think it's going to unfold gradually over time. But then we have Katie and Penny. Katie trying to figure out what's going on with these gaps in time she's experiencing. And Margot and Elliot trying to change the past for Fillory and also for themselves, for their friends. So Jason, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. And we're going to try something a little bit different this time. You and I have been having some off-air amicable banter about our episodes as we usually do. But we like to save a lot of the good stuff for when we start recording. And as The Magicians is one of our favorite shows, we generally have a lot of thoughts, a lot to talk about. We each will have our positives and negatives coming out that we tend to lay out here at the top. But just for the sake of fun this time, you and I are going to debate this from theoretical standpoints. So I'd like you to be all about the episode in your arguments. You're going to give us the pros and I'm going to play devil's advocate and give you the cons. And then later on, we can talk about our actual thoughts. So right at the top, tell me what was good about this episode.
1: Well, we have three major storylines. Typical of the magicians, they're taking full advantage of the fact that we have many heroes and they can use those heroes in either groups of two or by their lonesome to start threading these storylines. And although the main theme of this season, we don't really know yet, we're starting to get, even after episode two alone, an understanding of what these separate storylines are about and how they could interweave into each other. I believe they did a good job in giving the viewers, the closure we needed after last season and Quentin dying. There was a lot of hate, not hate, there was a lot of people hurt by the fact that he was taken away from us, and it almost felt like it didn't need to be written that way. It was more of a want than a necessity, story-wise. I think um, having a little cue there, and him being able to give Alice the closure is, in an essence, trying to give us some closure as well.
2: Before you move on to your next point, let me argue the flip side of that. There has been some talk that by bringing Quentin back in some way, shape, or form, and might we continue to do that in other ways throughout the course of the season, we're not sure yet, but by having him around still, does that make it harder for us to let go? Much like Alice's character, And this is a great piece of writing. I know I'm supposed to be con here, but the fact that subconsciously she brings back this version that is not able to leave Mm -hmm. so that she will get to be with Q a little bit longer. But does that make it hard for us as the audience to let go, as well as some of the stuff with Elliot? And he's still clearly hanging on. We'll talk about whether or not we think he sent that letter at the very end. Does it keep us wishing for this eventuality, let's say, between the two of them that we're not going to get to see?
1: Well, the stringing us along or the not letting us forget is purposeful. It reflects the way our heroes feel. So we are empathetic to what they're going through. Even though I just said we had closure, I think that's the physical closure we're going to get. And this is a complete guess. I think that letter was not mailed. Mm. And I think it will linger throughout the season for how long, I don't know. But this will be a battle that Elliot's going to have inwardly. And if it's externally, it'll be with Margot for the most part.
2: We did talk last time about how each character was moving through a certain phase of grief. We see that continuing to shift as this episode kind of gets further into things. Elliot's definitely still somewhat in denial when it comes to his emotions. He talks to Jane about that. She kind of calls him out on his bullshit that he's not really addressing it. And yet he's also doing a little bit of bargaining where this letter is concerned that maybe there's a way. That I could save him. Maybe it doesn't have to happen and I could bring him back. And then as you mentioned, we have Alice moving really quickly from a state of depression last time towards something closer to acceptance. And I'm not saying she has resolved all of her grief because she definitely hasn't. But I think that having Julia there helped her a lot to talk to this golem version of Quentin and kind of get some of that closure that she needs.
1: Moving on to another positive, And I'm just sticking with the three main themes going on right now. Let's talk about the Katie storyline. Although I will acquiesce to the fact that right now it's not very interesting and dare I say at some points not done very well.
2: You're stealing my lines here. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: There is a story that's building under all that that I'm pretty interested in if they deliver it correctly. We have someone who hid or moved a whole building filled with library books. Now, we had talked about last episode, maybe it's Zelda. But with what happened in episode two, I'm less likely to think that it's Zelda. Thinking about the fact that there was a hedge witch assassin that was hired to take out essentially the head hedge witch, I'm led to think that it's got to be a hedge witch that is out to get her and trying to hide things.
2: Or definitely somebody more sinister. I agree with you that I have kind of taken Zelda off the table since we saw all of this. She's upset with herself that she's not able to do better in this position, doesn't want to lead the library because of her shortcomings. I don't think she's purposely going out there and hurting anyone. I think it is causing a lot of mayhem that there isn't a hierarchy in place As frustrating as the library has been in the past, anarchy is not really serving anyone either. So I do think we'll come back around to her, but I don't think that's a direct correlation with what we're seeing. Somebody sending an assassin after Katie. This is bigger, as Penny surmises. And I agree that that part of it's interesting. I don't feel it was well executed in the short term in this space. I didn't feel interested in the character of Eugene too much. I think they wanted me to go on an emotional roller coaster of trusting him, believing him, feeling bad for him. There Maybe they start a connection with Katie and then, oh, surprise, he's a bad guy for hire. I, I don't really care because I've only just met him. This whole story is still very new to me. The interactions between the two of them felt a little bit strained. And there was some weird stuff with direction and visuals, such as the fight scene that broke out between the two of them in the bar. Action just kind of seemed to come up out of nowhere at times. I don't know that I was really enjoying how it was depicted.
1: I didn't like the music behind it. It didn't feel like a magician's background music. I know that a lot of work went into that fight scene as far as the choreography and how much they had to practice for that. And I do appreciate that. But you're right. It did come up. And I'm not supposed to be helping you here. Sorry. (laughs) But you're right. It did come up... uh, Kind of like out of nowhere, and then all of a sudden, oh, we're in a fight scene.
2: It was like a different and then style. This weird music of movie. came out,
1: and the the camera work was different. I felt that they were trying to grasp on to the points that we love with Katie is when she punches someone out, and she's so badass. But it just didn't feel right.
2: Right, and that's cool. We can get to that. But in general, and this is going to be another negative I'll bring up for the con point, a lot of the overall direction, visuals, filming, feeling a bit off, not cohesive to how it has in past seasons. And we got an email that I'll refer to later from a Clatcher about that, sort of stating a lot of what I've been feeling but couldn't quite put my finger on. The way that they were pulling Penny in to help, I enjoy what it's doing for the relationship between the two of them. I think we do need to see more of the struggle that's going on Katie isn't over Penny 40. There's a part of her that wants to be close to this Penny, but it's not her Penny. It's Penny 23. And so there's a lot of push-pull there. But for Penny's character, I thought we were developing something really cool that we didn't get too far into in episode one. And now we had to pull him out of that to sort of be the supporting character here for Katie's story. And I don't mind that happening, but maybe it was a little quick that I wanted to see more of what's happening with him as a professor and these, this signal Mm. That's hijacking him. That's what I'm interested in.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm on board with you as far as my interests are concerned, but I'm just holding on to the fact that it's only episode two, and hopefully we will delve into that in the upcoming episodes. What I did enjoy in regards to Penny is that this episode actually felt like someone who was more in control or a teacher, quote unquote. He was there to help. He was not reacting emotionally. He was the level headed one. He was able to get them the virtual VR or
2: psychic like amplifier. Yes. <laughs>
1: um, he was the sound voice there. And when Arjun acts level headed, he does that so well. So I truly did enjoy those scenes.
2: And last, let's move over to Fillery.
1: Is it over? Is it up? Is it down? What time are we? <laughs> it's forward. Let's move forward. I I have. I
2: I don't know how to totally argue the con side of things here because I have so many mixed feelings about Fillery. Everything that's happening there. So do they. (laughs) It's just. It's kind of wild. I individually enjoy the emotional journey that Elliot is going on tremendously. Of course, Hale Appleman. Just any sort of difficult acting he's given, he continues to knock it out of the park. We've seen a wide range from him before. But there's some simmering anger, resentment, frustration mixed in with the grief and the sadness about Q, and it keeps coming out almost like shots of fire directed at Margot. We've never seen that dynamic between the two of them before. She's in the middle of going through her own emotional journey, and yet she's trying to deal with, frankly, he's kind of a shit to her when he's talking about Josh. Oh, yeah. He's not really helping her. She keeps trying to develop one plan after the next, anything she can. Now, he does get the tools from Jane, which wind up being of great service to them. But he's also keeping secrets. So that's all well and good. The plot itself and the magic feels unfocused. It feels to be jumping back and forth. We've got time bees and we've also got time letters, but essentially it's going to come back to the time dwarf, the clockwork heart dwarf, and the ham sandwich in the end. Okay, so we knew this food, I guess, was going to be super important, so much so that I don't even totally follow it. I have to re-watch and go back into notes to figure out what actually happened with Josh by the end. I don't know that I should be feeling that way. These flashback clips and their adventures to solve the mystery should be part of the greatest of the episode. And yet it's falling a little short.
1: The first time I watched it, I was right with you on that. I didn't quite understand what happened. I watched it again today. To be honest with you, I rewound it a few times during the final scene with Elliot and Margot speaking to each other. That last letter, trying to figure out how did what Margot said end up with Josh being there? And I finally realized it's because even though Elliot had all those mean things to say, basically get over him, you were just chasing d when she gave him the letter he changed it
2: okay hold that i want to talk logistics when we get to that scene because they do have a lot of questions about it but the fact that you agree that you had to go back i did rewatch it multiple times i don't know that that should be the case and by the time that josh finally comes back saved this should be a grand emotional moment for him and margot And it kind of just fizzles out. Josh is back. She did it. She went through all of this to save him. It doesn't hit that high note again. There's weird, I don't know if it's direction or writing, but the pacing of it doesn't feel right over the course of the episode. This is a really long-winded way. We did a horrible job of this, Jason, by by the way. We we couldn't stay on, on either side of the fence. Clearly, what we're illustrating is there's a lot of mixed feelings about this season, but in particular, they got amped up for this episode. I walk away, I'm not quite sure where I land.
1: There's a lot of The Magician's positives that we completely love about this show. There's just some things that are different this season that feel different. The beats are a little different.
2: I think we'd be remiss if we didn't point that out because we do have a lot of clatchers writing in and some articles I've been reading that are mirroring those same responses. We have so much more to talk about though. So let's briefly get into our new faces, places and magic. Starting out with Golem Quentin, the 12-year-old version of Quentin, animated by this living clay, who's played by Luca Padovin.
1: So Clatchers who listened to us last episode passed the spoiler point. They were aware that it would be a child Quentin. I don't know if that changed the impact for me. I still thought it was really well done and well played out. Especially with the fact that it's Luca who's playing the child Quentin, because I know him from season one
2: of you. I've heard that. We got a lot of those little leaked spoilers ahead of time. I haven't gotten to see him act though until this because I don't watch that. I thought he did a terrific job. Absolutely. I don't know that it's 100% if I didn't know that was supposed to be Quentin. The mannerisms, if I would say, oh yeah, that's 12-year-old him. Mm. And in fact, the characters kind of need to keep reinforcing that for us. You know, the way Julia is looking at him, oh my goodness, this is him as as a child. It's really more of their reactions to him that's bridging that gap for me. Yes, it's written very well into the storyline. And this kid is a phenomenal actor. It's just a hard thing to do to try to portray a younger version of a different person. As we mentioned, we also got Yu Jin, who is this assassin for hire. Professor X we heard about, but didn't really get to see yet. I'm assuming that's going to come back around later. I don't think so. You don't think so?
1: They said she was blown up.
2: She blew her classroom up.
1: But Julia couldn't speak to her.
2: Oh, but I don't think she died. Ooh, that'd be really dark. I think she died. Oh, man. Yeah. I didn't get that feeling.
1: Or she's... Terribly injured, and that's why they can't speak I, to her.
2: Well, I thought she was just injured because the spell went wrong.
1: The only reason why I feel that way is because the end of the episode, Alice gives Julia the book whose master skill was being able to predict circumstances. So now we're off to see that character. Professor X is, I think, out of it now.
2: We're going to have to wait and see. I didn't get that take off of it. I thought they were just laying some track for someone that Dean Fogg knew. He says it was an ex-lover and she was a metamath genius. So not quite the same, but would still be very instrumental in this search for figuring out the surges that we're trying to do. The other person you were talking about is Daniela Marcus, who is author of the book Circumstantial Prognostication. Now, the circumstances that are turning out to be a huge thing, I'm really happy about that. They were an area that piqued my interest when I was reading the books. Yes. We are going to talk about that more, but that's in our closer look. So make sure you stay tuned later on for that. And that brings us to new magic. You said we got to see the psychic amplifier that Penny uses to try to help with the memories, the time bees, the Royal White Spire bees that can carry messages anywhere, and the time stamps that can send a letter across time and space. All courtesy of Jane Chatwin, who, by the way, we thought we might see, and here she is, <laughs> early in episode two. I didn't think it would come that quickly.
1: Whenever I see these little houses, I want to live there, and it's probably not as nice or doesn't feel as nice as a regular house, but visually, that's oh, that the kind cottage of place, seems yeah. awesome. There was other magic, of course, but this is just new magic.
2: That's correct. Well, now we'll move into our plot. We're going to start out with Alice and Julia. Picking up where we left off, Alice creating the Quentin Golem. She casts the spell, and when the figure rises, it's revealed to be the 12-year-old version of Quentin. He wonders if this is a lucid dream, and Alice goes with this. I guess she didn't really have a plan for that. He feels he's supposed to help her with something. But she's disappointed to discover he can't decipher the page she brought him back here for. He doesn't even know that language yet. He's too young.
1: Now, at this point in the episode, I was a little upset because I was thinking, of course— Alice wouldn't make a mistake like this. This feels like a stupid thing plot-wise to bring into the story. The kid can't read it. Why would you do that? But towards the end of the episode, and that's what I really liked about this episode, towards the end, they managed to answer questions that they brought up in the beginning. And that's one that was summed up pretty well.
2: Well, and clearly she didn't mean to in the spoiler section last time. I was surprised to hear when you told me about the photo because I mentioned the clay figure we're looking at Seemed more adult size. And also, I talked about how Alice is a brilliant magician. She always has been. That's a pretty large error in casting.
1: We didn't think about circumstances.
2: Well, they'll get Mm -hmm. you every time. (laughs) We're also, at this point, right back to where we often find ourselves in relation to Alice's storyline. Alone. Angry with her. Mm. How could you do this? Exactly what Julia is saying later, I feel she mirrors the audience. Alice is too smart and too skilled to go off doing crazy things because there can be dire consequences, and we have Mm. seen that happen with her more than once in the past. On the other hand, we see Julia going to solicit the help of Dean Fogg with these magic surges. He's wishing Effingham had told her something about the nature of the impending apocalyptic event, or in fact, anything useful. (laughs) She informs him that magicians are blowing themselves up so much, civilians have started to catch on. There's too much magic. And while some surges are unnoticeable, others are big. She's wondering why the patterns. This is where Fogg explains it's due to the circumstances. A magician must factor them all into casting, but some make them easier and some make them harder. Some of these surges must be lining up with particularly favorable circumstances to create that condition. And as we said, we're going to... Get deep into that in a closer look.
1: I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Whenever Fog is on the screen, and even if he's being expositional, I truly enjoy it when he's talking. His cadence, his deep voice, it feels like a story is being told to me, which is probably what makes him a good teacher as well. So this scene I liked. We needed that explained. Um, and then also on top of that, he had a new pair of awesome shoes just pointing that out.
2: (laughs) Well, there continues to be an awful lot of exposition. I can tell just as somebody doing a podcast, the way I have to take notes that I'm just furiously typing and pausing because they've said so much in a span of five minutes that I really don't understand. They're just tossing information at us.
1: Yeah. Typey, typey, typey. (laughs) It was annoying me you were typing so loud.
2: (laughs) Sometimes it works better than others. We had spoken last episode. Generally, it's more effective if it's done in a show manner. Mm -hmm. And there's some action or event that's unfolding that organically explains it to us. We're getting a lot of characters just laying it out here. Even that, though, sometimes is okay. So yeah, Dean Fogg is a character that can really carry the exposition better. I was... Actually eager for a bit more exposition from Jane Chatwin. She's a character we haven't seen in a while. And her dynamic with Elliot is incredible. It's fascinating to watch the two of them. So I actually would have put a little bit more on that scene.
1: I know we're not at that scene yet, but I thought enough was said with Jane to put precedence on the fact that we can't and we shouldn't want Q
2: back. Yeah, but that didn't feel too talky talk. No, it didn't. (laughs) Well, as we mentioned, we end this scene with Fogg thinking they could use help from Professor X. But the classroom then blows up. And we move to Alice trying to buy some time with Quentin. He's thinking now, this is an awfully long dream when Julia shows up and discovers what she's done.
1: So I have to stop you now for a very important part of the show that you didn't bring up. I'm sorry, but the tacos just looked so good. I wanted tacos. And just thinking about how many takes you have to take when you're doing a show and how many times that kid had to bite into a taco... But what I thought was interesting, which it really isn't, but I'm going to bring it up anyways, is that he said he wanted Taco Bell.
2: They didn't get Taco Bell.
1: They did not get Taco Bell, probably because they can't have the logo there. But what they did get was Hora de Taco. So, stupid me, I started looking that up. Every website said it translated into rush hour. So, rush hour taco. Mm. A friend of mine at work actually speaks Spanish and he laughed at me like I'm an idiot. And he goes, no. He says, it doesn't mean anything really. It kind of just, if you roughly try to make it something, it's trying to say taco time. Okay. Because hora means hour. So hour of taco. Mm. So taco time, which I think makes sense because also something I kept getting was Fortnite. Fortnite has a dance where the guy's dancing with tacos. It's taco time, taco time. Mm -hmm. But he said, he kind of sees what I'm saying and why I got that for translation because the Mexican slang... And I'm still going to butcher this because I still didn't really understand him. And it was at work. He didn't have time to really break it down. Taco is a short way of saying trancón, which means a lot of traffic or cars that are not moving. So traffic jam. So if you put it in a translation thing, it could mean rush hour. Mm. Because taco is short for traffic jam. Hora is hour. So rush hour.
2: Okay, you know you're going to pay for this whole long tangent now, People are going to yell at me? This, this is reminding... Well, I'm going to yell at you. This is reminding me of the grilled cheese conversation we got mm. into with Mr. Robot. It's still butter, by the way. Never mayo. <laughs> and now you've made me want tacos. So after this, you're going to be forced to come with me to get Taco Bell. Let's that's get Taco how Bell. You, that's how you pay for Effort.
1: it. And <laughs> people, don't get mad at me. This is just research I did. I am telling you I don't know, really, but I thought it was fun. It's, it's
2: another Mr. Robot situation. Yeah. You're bringing us back to trying to describe... I love food the song mr roboto now that we've jumped the shark let's get back to this confrontation because this is one of my favorite parts where julia is really making alice reckon with the weight of what she's done alice confesses she used the book of q's life to fill the golem with his memories then animated it with a tiny grain of his soul she pulled from the underground
1: when did that happen? what
2: when <laughs> how the hell is this possible
1: i don't know when how that would have been interesting.
2: When and how. I, I can't imagine that's a thing they're just going to skip over. That feels crazy to me. Number two, Alice can do that? What, she, is, what do we say? She's pretty, the most
1: powerful of them. Uh,
2: yeah, it's going up in my estimation. But also she found a page in Q's things at break bills and was unsure of its meaning because she couldn't read it. This is why she tried to bring him back to decipher it. I don't think that's going to be the end of that page.
1: No, no. The not fact at all. is,
2: we don't know what it says. It no. feels like there's importance to it.
1: Or at least we are feeling what Alice is feeling is that this is the last remnants of Q that we don't know. So it must have importance emotionally, you know? So it does its job either way. Mm-hmm. I wanted to say before you move on, I loved Stella's acting. When that door is open and when Julia sees Quentin, the way her face dropped. You could feel that and you could, and right away I was like, oh yeah, of course she knows what he looks like as a kid. She grew up with him. Best friends.
2: Olivia Taylor Dudley's acting as well. That first instinct, (laughs) you're so embarrassed and ashamed, but you're trying to just play it off. Like, what are you talking about? Everything's fine here. Just eating tacos. But then immediately the awful sinking feeling, I know what I did was so wrong. I couldn't help myself. I didn't know how to get out of this place that I was in. Julia gets more and more angry, demanding Alice get rid of the golem. She has to figure this out so she can put the piece of Q's soul back where it belongs. But Alice explains, the spell keeps the golem alive until he completes the task he was sent to do. We've compounded this problem now. She brought him back to decipher the page, and yet the 12-year-old version of him can't do that, thus he's stuck here till they figure a way out. You know, Julia wonders, how could you do something so insanely selfish? So together, they have to try to find a solution. Julia goes to talk to Q. I think at first, just trying to determine, is this really him on any level? She's watching him and picking up on the things that her friend, she's using that metaphor, used to do the same. As soon as he finished a book, he would go back to the beginning. Young Quentin says he hates endings. And in fact, his therapist has told him he has transition anxiety. So Julia returns to confirm for Alice, this is the Quentin she remembers at that age. She also says she's been reading about circumstances due to these surges, and not all of them are astrological. Some are inside you. As you said, she thinks Alice performed the spell perfectly. The issue here while her brain may have asked for a version of Q that could read that page, her emotions were looking for something different. Perhaps she needs to ask him a different question.
1: And I thought that explained it very well, why a child cue is there, rather than me thinking, well, maybe they just had to come up with this because Jason doesn't want to work there
2: anymore or something. I don't know. Which might also be a factor. True. But But if so, amazing writing, it fits right in there. And I think absolutely what Alice needed was this younger kind of innocent version of Quentin, who's... Yeah, still got problems, but he also has this joy about magic. This is what we were always drawn to his character for, right? I mean, he maintains that even as he goes into adulthood. The love of fillery, the love of magic for magic's sake. He's already showing her a magic trick a little bit later on. She needs to talk to him, and that is what comes next. Alice confesses she had a friend she loved who died, and she didn't get to say goodbye. He gave her a gift she can never repay, his life. So she wanted to fix or finish something for him to get closure. Young Q thinks he can't help because Alice doesn't want him to, because then that means her friend's story is over. But the gift he gave wasn't his life, it was hers. And her story has just started.
1: Just like what his father used to say. I thought that was so well written mm. and so well delivered. I appreciated that scene.
2: And exactly how I feel about books, too.
1: And in a way, it was kind of talking to us, too.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now that his mission is completed, Golem Quentin says he's feeling tired and falls asleep, just as Alice finally says goodbye. She goes and she tells Julia he's gone, but she thinks she might be able to help with Julia's problem. This is where she tells her about her dad's friend, Daniela Marcus, with the rare discipline of predicting circumstances. Alice thinks if anyone can help find the pattern, it would be her. That's going to wrap up that plot line and take us over to Katie, who meets Pete at a bar to say she's had no luck asking about the stolen depository. They're thinking someone should have seen a job this big, but they don't know what else to do. So he soon leaves with a woman, and that's when Katie meets Eugene. They go home together, but he quickly runs out the next morning.
1: Now, he was pretty slick at the bar. He had the moves.
2: I mean, kind of. He's a little bit goofy, but I think that's part of his charm. And that's how he's even getting out of there the next morning. I know you don't want me here. (laughs) You know, he's playing it off. So she goes out to catch up with Penny. He's trying to tell her about the signal he's been receiving.
0: One of my students was hearing this signal. When I listened to it, I just traveled. No idea where, no idea why, and none of this can explain it.
1: (laughs) So just don't listen to the signal again?
0: Wow. Thank you. Shut up. Except now I hear it all the time. This here helps quiet down a bit, but... It's
2: kind of terrifying
1: to lose control of yourself like that.
2: Yeah. Are you okay? She's listening, but clearly preoccupied. She tells him she's badly hungover and thinks it's been a year that she was sober and she doesn't even remember drinking last night. This is a horrible revelation she thinks she's coming to. mm she actually went out and had so much to drink that she can't even remember starting in the first place. This obviously makes sense of why she looks so distraught when Eugene is leaving. But the more she's telling this story, Penny's realizing she doesn't remember anything from the previous day, including looking for the depository. So this is probably something other than alcohol. That's when she goes to find Eugene and gives him truth serum to see if he drugged her.
1: Wait a minute. You drugged my drink to find out if I drugged I your drink? I know. I like that. It's
2: funny. He's very angry at the accusation. He denies it, says he's also experiencing memory gaps. So they return to Penny, who uses the homemade psychic amplifier to connect both of their memories into a more cohesive story. They watch the previous night play out until Katie sees Eugene get up in the middle of the night, seemingly possessed, and start performing a spell. She springs up to stop him, but the curse rebounds and they're both knocked out.
1: Now, in these scenes, I really enjoyed the magic of being able to go back and watch your memories in a VR format. I love that. I have two questions. One is, was he getting up, Eugene, to kill her or to do a spell to make her forget?
2: I think so. And then he was going to try to leave, but she got up and...
1: When she later finds out he's an assassin, he talks about killing, murder. So that's what led me to believe, no, he was actually trying to kill her.
2: I think he's just a man for hire, Okay, whatever the job is. And the job here is to remove all memories of anything connected to the library deposit.
1: So that changes it completely then, or changes my thoughts on it. Maybe that person that's out to make them not see the truth isn't that dangerous. And maybe it still could be Zelda if it was just to make them forget.
2: Forget, that could be.
1: I think if it's just to forget... Zelda's still in play.
2: Bad that you hire a man like this, but, you know, what are you going to do? Or maybe she didn't know.
1: Maybe he's good at it. And that's why, I mean, there's a movie with Jason Statham, The Transporter. And his whole thing was, I never want to know what's in my hood Mm -hmm. or trunk. I never want to know what's in my trunk, why I'm taking it anywhere. I want to know nothing. I just take it from point A to point B. That's it every time. It's the same thing basically. I don't want to know afterwards what I did.
2: Yeah, Katie tells him you're basically trying to remove your conscience from the scenario. But
1: then what I'm about to say is moot. If it was going to be to kill her, I was thinking that it is a possibility that Pete hired him. Because we never when did Pete Because it's his weird mind?
2: that he and it's weird he left the bar with that woman right before
1: Yeah, and then he's there in the last scene and he's like, I don't remember either.
2: It, he makes it seem, Eugene makes it seem like this woman was his counterpart, and this was sort of a tag team. Maybe. That she went to take Pete's memories because he's forgetting too, and he went to take Katie's. And they both
1: went on on dates. Okay. Right. I can dig it.
2: I think that, I don't know for sure, but if he'd been trying to kill her with that spell, and it partially rebounded, the two of them would be hurt worse than getting knocked out. Okay. Although, who knows? That's all speculation.
1: That's the thing. Like, if he normally didn't forget every time, then I would really be confident that it was a forget spell because it got rebounded on him as Mm -hmm. well.
2: All right. Well, either way, he says that he remembers he was there to meet his friend, quote unquote, who went home with Pete. So they replay the memory and Katie sees the woman hand him a card and Eugen's eyes flash again. It's that sense that he's been programmed. That's when she starts putting two and two together. She demands to know his true identity and they start fighting. He finally admits someone sent him to erase her memory. This is what he does. He gets a job, completes it, and then wipes his own memory. Katie has an answer for that. She threatens to simply have Penny go probe his mind with his psychic powers. He'll find it somehow. It sufficiently scares Eugene that he believes he has no choice, and he casts the spell, Mort, killing himself. Mm. I mean, we just took this thing to a whole other level.
1: Yeah. You feel safe, you
2: kill yourself so that the information doesn't get given out. I mean, that's... That's a big deal. So if this is somebody like Zelda, Mm -hmm. either this is his mode of operation that he's decided, or I don't know, I can't come to terms with that, having a higher up who tells you if you get to that point where you think you're going to give something up, you kill yourself. That's crazy.
1: But I am in the school that I think we need to know this person.
2: Yeah, with everything else going on, I don't know how on board I'm going to be with yet another big bad. Twitch, yeah. And it does seem to be related to the library because it's the books they're after. Yeah. I totally figured it out. It's got to be Irene McAllister. Back
1: into the storyline. That's right, because she got away.
2: And we wondered, when is she going to come back? How is this going to weave back in and connect to the library and everything else? Somebody who has that power, but is also sinister enough to
1: oh, very sinister. not care
2: how she gets to the end goal. We've seen that. If I think this could be her reappearance.
1: Irene McAllister. Clatchers, if you don't remember, quickie download. Irene was in charge of the magicians on Earth who still had magic when magic wasn't available. And we soon found out that it was because they were stealing the magic from fairies. Yeah.
2: The art of the deal was the big episode in season three.
1: Then there was that final scene where the fairy queen came, killed everyone at that dinner table, except for Irene, who was under the the table and then got away. So that could be her, I think. Good going, Chris.
2: Not that I really want to see her again, but Mm. that could spice up this story.
1: And that would make sense for Eugene to be the kind of guy who kills himself. Mm. What did he say again? Mort. Mort. Ah, that's right. So I googled what mort means, and it means rush hour. It means (laughs)
2: death. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, finally, we hear that Penny reflects if someone's paranoid enough to send mind-wiping assassins, this must be big. And Katie has this large admission. She says when she thought she'd relapsed the night before, she was relieved rather than upset as it would give her permission to continue. Her mission's only going to get harder and she doesn't know how she'll do it without a crutch. This was really sad to hear Katie struggling with that so much because she's made so much progress and I really don't want to see a relapse. I know that that often happens. Mm -hmm. The the cycle of addiction, I, I work with This all the time, but I was actually happy she was being so open and honest. This is something you feel throughout this process to be able to talk to Penny about it and maybe forge the friendship. And no sooner does she get that out, she's exposed and a bit vulnerable. I think she immediately regrets it because he reaches out to her and she kind of rejects him. She gets up and walks away. Finally, let's talk fillery. And further. (laughs) Elliot's drinking in the forest when he gets a vision of Fen hanging from a noose. She tells him when she was king, the people screamed at her that she was a bad ruler and then hanged her. She knew he wouldn't come to help her. You know, being busy with the monster or else just off drinking. She knows her husband. She was counting on Margot to save her. But then she thinks if he does know a spell that can turn back time, could he please do it? She starts deteriorating, yelling and pleading for his help.
1: I thought Fen was very funny. It was a good reprieve because everything was so serious.
2: And to call him out... Yes. You know, we got a lot of that going on, which is good. Because he then goes to see Jane, asking for her to travel and help change the past.
0: So what do you say? Want to go back in time, save my friends, and unfuck history for old time's sake?
2: If I'd change anything,
0: it could undo every sacrifice we've all made to stop the beast. Why did you build a workshop full of time travel gadgets if you aren't willing to use them? The lesson that I've learned from a life of trying to change the past is, well... You almost always make things worse. Speaking of, where is my little volunteer tomato? <laughs> volunteer and... Um, Quentin, uh, my dear. He died, saving me, saving everybody. Stiff a lip, hey? Positively British of you. Someone's gotta keep it together. Is that what you think you're doing? Back when Quentin first came to Fillory, in the very first timeline, he was running from grief. His best friend had died, tragically. Julia. You, A victim of your own vices. I was worried that I was taking advantage of him, of his sorrow. So the first change I made was to save you, to see if he would still answer Fillory's call. And he did. And then he died 39 times. (sighs) I'd hope this time would be different. It still could be. You saved him 39 times. Why not 40? Because he won. If you took away his sacrifice, you'd lose everything that it brought you. Your life and the lives of everyone around you. Same with your friends, Josh and... Is it Flynn? It was not. Let go of the past, Elliot. Let the dead stay
2: dead.
1: Again, very telling, and it really lets us know this is not something we want.
2: Hmm. Yeah, Elliot needs to let go of the past. However, when she returns with tea, Jane finds Elliot has fled and stolen all of the magical time items from her shelves. Just Just... everything.
1: Now, this is the part of the story where I thought the watch would come into...
2: I know. I know. It's like every other random time thing we never knew existed. That's why I was getting a little frustrated. It's kind of fun. I mean, that is the smart move if you don't know what you're doing. Just take everything and start trying to figure it out.
1: Yes. But we have to remember that it's on the beginning opening title.
2: So Mm -hmm.
1: it's got to come into play eventually.
2: I don't know. I mean, he goes back. He brings all this stuff to Margot, who's... Busy trying to break out of her prison cell. She's created a magical key, tried forceful spells, but the wards are thwarting her attempts. She does knock a brick loose in her efforts, revealing a letter Josh left before his execution. And Josh begins narrating as we see flashbacks. He says they knew something had gone right on Earth, when magic came back stronger than ever. But months passed with no word from the group and no way for them to return. The connection between Fillory and Earth was somehow destroyed. That's a huge line that was jumped right over. We didn't even know that could happen. Yeah. We didn't know that was going on in that time frame. And hearing news around Fillory, Abigail suggested the ruler send spies to the Northern Marshes to investigate the creatures called the Takers. We're hearing about them again. That's definitely going to be a storyline that we come back to. Fenn and Josh unfortunately never did. Josh finishes by saying he hopes Marco finds the letter because he did all of this for her. It's then that Elliot brings his items... Going through them, they find this spray, which is actually very effective, that will protect the wearer from the effects of time magic.
1: This was very important because it right away explains a part of the story that we would have had issues with. If they continue to change the past, how is Margot and Elliot still in the same situation every time? But now we know because they sprayed themselves with something that makes them impervious to it.
2: Why didn't Jane just spray everybody with that when she was going back trying to change things? (laughs) Like. Some of these items bring up more questions than they resolve.
1: Oh, it definitely does, because the whole thing they're talking about with Q, if we bring Q back, then you all might be dead because he sacrificed himself. Well, if we spray ourselves...
2: have him spray everybody before that. <laughs>
1: but remember, the whole world was going.
2: It so wasn't maybe. just that, I, I understand. it. It's anytime you bring in a bunch of time stuff like this, mm-hmm. and they do try to avoid that, you know, the bees are just messengers, so it's minimized.
1: I love the fact that Margot says timey-wimey.
2: And I love the fact that she forgets Josh is allergic to bee stings. Mm. Like, whoops. <laughs> oh, goodness. She's a great character. So that doesn't work, obviously. They see things have changed because she finds Fenn's cell phone behind the brick and they view this video where Josh is stung. Finally, they find a book called History of Fillory from the Royal Library. Margo learns that after Josh was stung to death, Fen sent the bees to hunt down the Dark King, after which she was overthrown and executed. Exactly what you were saying, it changes all of these other things, and how do you ever get it to the point where it's a satisfactory end result? Yeah. Elliot is now frustrated that the plans aren't working and ready to give up.
1: That's the thing with time we learned. Uh, Sometimes some things are just meant to be. Mm -hmm. Like Q dying.
2: Yeah. And this is where Elliot gets... Nasty. Confused why Margot's fighting so hard for a guy she didn't really care about. He says, you are Margot the Destroyer, not Margot the Pining Girlfriend. Oh, Elliot. Furious, she plans to continue searching for an answer and comes across a paper inside the book that she recognizes. They are time stamps. She remembers a homesick Jane, new to Fillory, came across a forest king who gave her stamps to write to her brother. Once you put one on a letter, it can be sent to anyone, anywhere. anytime. So she writes this letter to Josh to pay attention to the takers.
0: Dear Josh, hello from your friends 300 years in the future. The bad news is we can't come back to get you. The good news, if you do exactly what I say, you won't be overthrown and executed. Uh, Fen, you're going to want to see this. Those reports you've been ignoring about an invasion of creatures in the Northern Marsh, stop ignoring them. Send an army today. I told you we should have.
2: shush. Summon the guards.
0: Everyone, we did it. We scared the Takers back to wherever the hell they came from. Go us!
2: And somehow when we fix the past, I hope we can see each other again. But they return to kill everyone in Whitespire. Even this isn't working.
1: And this whole time we're still not being shown the actual Takers or the Dark King. Mm-hmm. And I think that's purposeful because if we do end up seeing them later on in the episode, it'll have that much more of an impact.
2: Absolutely. With only one stamp left, as Elliot tells Margot he sent a letter of his own along the way, she thinks they need a new plan. But he says, why bother? You try to save your friends and they die anyway. You can't stop the Dark King. Fillory is fucked because it always is. Why do you keep trying to fix something that wants to be broken?
1: So you brought something up last night that made a lot of sense. We're supposed to not really like Elliot right now. But I think it's dangerous because... All last season, we didn't like Elliot.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, we
1: knew it wasn't Elliot. But I'm
2: it was still I'm, his face on screen. Yeah.
1: I'm ready to like him again. But with the fact of what happens at the end of this episode, I think it redeems him a little bit. He's in pain, and we have to realize that.
2: He is, but to the point that he isn't even trying this whole time to figure out a way to get Margo out of that cell. None of this is working. He's saying he doesn't really even want to save Fillory. He doesn't understand the relationship with Josh. Josh has to come get her out. I always been think about that, though. What's always been redeeming for these characters is their relationship with each other. So Mm. it's not even so much the grief and the difficulty Elliot is going through. It's the way he's responding to Margot and pushing back at her, getting angry with her. We talked last time about how grief is expressed differently in everyone. In real life, this is true to form.
1: You hurt the people you love.
2: That, but also people get very frustrated with you if your grief does not correspond with this very narrow set of reactions that people expect when you're upset. You'll be sad. You'll cry for a little while. You'll need support that you'll respond to and then you'll get over it. And this is just not the way that loss and grief works. And more often than not, it can come out as anger, resentment, frustration, lashing out. Like I say, I think the issue is Margot and Elliot are supposed to be a team together, right? And that's what she's feeling. He's not letting her help work through this. He's not trying to talk about it. And he's not able to help with the plans to save their friends. So she's really having to contain herself from lashing out at him. But I do think it's a great portrayal on both of their parts. It is one of the most interesting things for me to watch. And this is the point where Margot realizes maybe Elliot's right about something. She can't get both Josh and her kingdom back. So she uses the last letter to tell Josh how to stay alive and escape. She thinks this means she won't get to see him again. So she's also saying goodbye in the letter. And she doesn't really know what's going to happen to Fillory. She's admittedly nervous about this plan. This is where I asked you... Did Margot just tell him that because she doesn't want to divulge clearly everything she's been saying about Josh he doesn't care about? So she wrote whatever she was going to write in the letter, but then told Elliot something different? Or did Elliot finally get it Mm -hmm. and correct the letter himself before he sent it out? I'm very confused.
1: I think it was Elliot corrected the letter afterwards Mm -hmm. and came up with the plan of bring the sandwich down to the clock dwarf. Mm Mm-hmm take yourself and the important people around you to us 300 years ahead. Yes. Um, I think that's better because it's a bit of a redeemable quality as far as Elliot's concerned. And I think that puts a little more angst on his next decision he has to make about Q. And also I think it'll put a little nice twist into the Margot-Josh storyline. If Josh finds out that Margot actually didn't write that and was potentially giving up on Josh.
2: See, I I didn't get that her original letter was giving up on him. I think she was still trying to help him, but resigned to they weren't going to be able to bring him back. They weren't going to be able to be together.
1: Mm. Right. Okay. Giving up on Josh and her being together.
2: But I wish the episode had made it a little clearer to me because I agree with you. I think that's a good character move for Elliot. Maybe I'm just slow and I missed that that was super obvious he did it.
1: No, it wasn't. Again, I watched it today for the second time, and I rewound that section like three times Mm. to figure it out. And I still, it wasn't straightforward. But that might be something that is is explained next episode.
2: Yeah, that's true, because we also just get a very short clip here. We mentioned of Josh reappearing, thanking Margot. He tells her he was able to bring these people back with him. And it appears as though Margot is going to rule them all in exile. Yeah. Correct? They're going on their own little...
1: For now, I mean they're going to try to take down the Dark King. Yeah, eventually. I'm but I, I to think they—they they they need a
2: plan, and they're not really allowed to be here right now.
1: And Josh put the key in the hole, which was yeah, cool. he got her like out of that.
2: there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not until the very end, as they start walking off, we see Elliot seemingly trying to mail that letter with the last stamp. That we don't know for sure, and it's addressed to Quentin Coldwater before he went to the seam.
1: That's so dangerous.
2: It's. Insanely dangerous. We can obviously understand why he's doing it, but who Well,
1: I mean, he didn't get to say goodbye.
2: I mean nobody did really. That's kind of what a lot of this has been about. Each character trying to find closure in their own way mm. and find true. some way of moving forward.
1: But he wasn't even there. You know what I mean? Or around. He it, was stuck it was in his
2: kind of worse for someone like Alice who actually had to witness
1: True. Absolutely, Quentin
2: being pulled in, I feel. And of course, there's a lot of emotional connection between Elliot and Quentin, but as there was with Alice. And this cliffhanger leaves us with a lot of questions ourselves for next time. What's going to happen between Katie and Penny 23? Will Katie be able to continue her quest to help the Hedges? Will that page from Q's book come back into play? Will Alice be able to move on now? And if so, what will she do? Will Julia find help about the circumstances? Where are Margot and the group of exiles going? What's their plan going to be? And what are the consequences of that letter?
1: Now, I don't think Alice is going to be over it and able to completely move on. But I think the writers did a good job on explaining away the inevitable questions that all the Clatchers would have, well, Clatchers, that all the fans of the magicians would have, which is it's magic. They've found ways to go back in time. They found ways to bring people back. Why can't they do it with Quentin?
2: Well, that's going to take us to our rating for this episode. Newly christened on a scale of one to 10 surges, Jason, what do you give episode two?
1: For all the reasons already stated in this episode of our podcast, I'm going to go up a little bit, but there's a lot more room for growth. I'm going to go up to 7.8 surges. There's still so much amazing, the magician's type magic and storytelling and intrigue, but something feels different and I don't think we've seen enough to really put our finger on what it is yet.
2: I agree, and I don't think I've changed a lot in my feelings, so I'm just going to stay exactly the same as episode one and give this a seven surges.
1: And now we move on to our Clatcher segment, where via Twitter, at podcast we ask our Clatchers after every episode, who is your MVM, Most Valuable Magician? Now there's three hours left, so this may change a little bit, but I think we have a pretty solid winner on this. Our options were Margot, Alice, Julia, and Katie. In fourth place, oh, she's gone up since we started this podcast with 11.1%. I think she was at six before. Julia.
2: I think I would rank her a little bit higher because I do really appreciate her interactions with Alice and how she was able to help her out of that, even though she was very stern with her. She stayed. They found a solution. She helped Alice to get some closure. And she's still investigating this. Quite important issue of the magic surges that nobody else really seems to be that interested in. So I liked her journey actually a lot more than in the season premiere. I'm starting to get excited about where that could go. But of course, there's not a lot of forward momentum yet. As we said, I think that's going to be a a slow play over the course of the season. Coming in third place with 13.3% is Alice.
1: I think it's really important that Alice and ourselves went through what she went through this episode with the golem. She did something crazy.
2: I wished her mom had been there just for a half a second. Uh So Alice could be like, great advice, mom. (laughs) You're a real winner with this stuff.
1: (laughs) And in second place with 15.6%, Katie.
2: This is really close for second, third, and fourth.
1: Yeah. Look, I I like where her storyline is going. But again, I I didn't really enjoy this episode with her. How it's getting there. Yeah. We may be alone in that.
2: Yeah, we're going to have to wait and see where it goes. But with an overwhelming 60% coming in first place is Margot. Margot the Destroyer. (laughs) Ruler of everything. I just continue to love her character in all its forms, no matter what she's going through. There's so much strength to her, even when she's being vulnerable. There's a bravery to it, the way she confronts Elliot. The way she sticks to what she knows is important despite all of the barriers that she's up against. The acting is on point. I mean, it's just great. I don't have one negative thing to say about Margot.
1: Her jokes were on point, too, (laughs) in this episode. Pretty
2: much the only character whose humor I'm finding lands with me at the present time. So let's see what the Clatchers had to say about it.
1: Clatchers, you can join in on the conversation by messaging us on Twitter under the poll or emailing us, contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com, or giving us a phone call, ckc.6606. That's 252-368-6606.
2: Mellie says special write-in for Fenn slash Brittany Curran, who managed to get three bars in Fillory.
1: Uh, That's so brilliant, especially considering uh, the little vlogs that Fenn had leading up to the season.
2: Well, the fact that it wasn't that long ago in the Magician's Universe that Fenn was completely cut off from anything Earth and technology related. That's right. So she was discovering things like cell phones (laughs) for the first time. Sherry Ava says Alice and Julia's journey with young Quentin was tender and allowed for more healing. It was a beautiful lifeline for those finding it difficult to move on within the episode and for the fans.
1: Beautifully said. Hashtag Wednesday vibes.
2: <laughs> she also says Katie's definitely on the trail of something very big. She's going to need more backup than the personification of cocaine, Pete. <laughs> if she wants to stay strong, hopefully she will bring together the group for this mystery. It was a tough choice between her and Margot this week. They both persistently and relentlessly pursued answers and solutions. In the end, Margot found a way to save Fen and Josh so that she can move forward.
1: Save Fen and Josh
2: and, Fillory tick, and Tick Pickwick and all of them. Amir said, honestly, this episode was one of my favorites. Amazing plots in each storyline. I have a theory. Little Q isn't gone, and I believe he discovers magic early because of the surges and looks for Fillory then becomes obsessed and turns into the Dark King. Whoa. Whoa. That just totally blew my mind.
1: I like it. I don't think they'll do that. That guy's got to go to Fillory
2: somehow. And you need Jason Ralph for that. I mean, I I get that the Dark King would look a little different. And man, would that be amazing to see? Because we did see Jason Ralph play some...
1: The beast, basically. Uh, The
2: the beast, the depression monster, all of those times where he had to dig deep for something else and he did awesome with it. But I'm not going to get my hopes up for that because I really don't think he is returning.
1: What if that is the best kept secret? That Jason Ralph is still part of it, but now he's a bad guy. That's why
2: it's so weird. You're going to get all the Clatchers excited. Then they're going to get mad.
1: Amir is. (laughs) It's not my fault.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Viking says Margot. She put her friends before her kingdom. Percy's owner, I was torn between Katie and Margot because both of them refused to stop in their personal quests. I finally chose Katie because I'm pretty sure Margot, who is my favorite, will have lots of episodes where I'll vote (laughs) for her. Yeah, I am feeling that as well, but I don't care. I just, I love Margot. Be nice says tough call between Margot and Julia. Yeah, that was mine too. Both dealing with immense grief of their own, faced with actions of those who are also grieving in alternate ways. Margot and Elliot have a lot of history to draw them back together, but Julia being able to reach out and help Alice was powerful. Mm. That was my feeling too, and I was really thinking about giving it to Julia. I've been talking throughout this podcast. What she's doing is incredibly hard. We saw that even in the premiere. She's dealing with her own grief. She certainly wants that book of Quentin's for herself, yet she sees that Alice needs it more, and she gives it to her. She comes back to check on her this time. There's a lot of old history between the two of them. And yet she's trying to be there for her as much as she can. And this time she doesn't just say, you did something nuts, fix it. She stays to help. Rishandle says, hi, King Margo for the win. Margo and Josh continue to be the ship I never knew I needed. (laughs) Absolutely. And I was real down on the Margo-Josh stuff when it started. I don't entirely know that it's my favorite thing, but I've warmed up to it a lot. I was feeling very emotional seeing him in the premiere. I just don't think they held on that long enough when he returned. It might have been the impact I was looking for to see them reunited. But Margot, just killing it. She is going to be my MVM for this episode.
1: I absolutely agree with you. Margot, for the win. High King, Margot.
2: In Exile. On to our closer look that I've been excited about. We're talking this time about circumstances. In the books, the way they describe this... They say the same way a verb has to agree with its subject, it turned out, even the simplest spell had to be modified and tweaked and inflected to agree with the precise circumstances of its casting. These are forces that affect a magician's spell, and there are four tiers that they have to account for. Major, minor, tertiary, and quaternary. That's a mouthful.
1: Yeah. And this is one of the things that explains why magic is so difficult in this universe, and that's... We've been talking about this for seasons now, why we love it so much. It's not just a flick of the wrist. Again, I started reading the book, and they start to go into it already. I don't think I'd be able to figure it out. It's
2: confusing as hell. It's both a science and an art. And no matter where I look, they're not cleanly breaking it down into each of those four tiers and what they mean. But I do have listings. So it says, for most spells, this is what they have to account for. The easy one. And I have a feeling maybe that means minor.
1: Yeah. Easy was the wrong word. You're right. Minor.
2: The, le- the tier of minor. Time of day, which direction you're facing, and the ambient temperature.
1: Okay. So the moon's not involved yet.
2: Not yet. Okay. So what time is it? Am I north, south, east, west, and what's the temperature? For more complex spells, so that I would guess is major, phase of the moon, dew point, and the balance of bodily humors. For example, melancholic people cannot perform transfiguration spells. Wow. Then you have tertiary. And that includes altitude, age, position of the Pleiades, and no, I don't know what that means, phases of the moon and the nearest body of water. Wow. And the quaternary tier, I have no idea. They don't list that. In addition to that, each tier has several exceptions, irregularities, and special cases, meaning there are hundreds of other factors. (laughs) A spell's circumstances can be adjusted by magicians to perform irregularly. So we did see an instance of that in the books when they go to the South Pole, and she alters for Miller's Flame to release heat during the race to keep them warm. This is all in addition to Julia telling us this episode, not all circumstances are astrological. Those hundreds of things. There's also elements that are inside of you. And this is something that Mayakovsky alluded to when he talks to them in the book. He teaches them a lot of things. I miss him. When they go to the South Pole and he's talking about magician's just starting out really memorizing all of these circumstances and having to think about it. But then as time goes by, it becomes a lot more intuitive. Just that feeling of I should be facing in that direction for it to work better, or I should be making my hand movements bigger rather than smaller. So here's another excerpt from the book. It says talent was part of it, that silent invisible exertion he felt in his chest every time a spell came out right. This is Quentin talking. But there was also work, hard work, mountains of it. Every spell had to be adjusted and modified in hundreds of ways according to the prevailing circumstances. These circumstances could be just about anything. Magic was a complicated, fiddly instrument that had to be calibrated precisely to the context in which it operated. Quentin had committed to memory dozens of pages of closely printed charts and diagrams spelling out the major circumstances and how they affected any given enchantment. And then, once you had all that down, there were hundreds of corollaries and exceptions to memorize, too. As much as it was like anything, magic was like a language. And like a language, textbooks and teachers treated it as an orderly system for the purpose of teaching it. But in reality, it was complex and chaotic and organic. It obeyed rules only to the extent that it felt like it. And there were almost as many special cases and one-time variations as there were rules. So, all of this to say... Julia's task that she's taking on here is monumental. And that's why they really do need someone who is an expert in this field to try to figure out what the hell is happening. Well, that's going to do it except for our spoiler section. So if you are afraid of that, we'll see you next time when we review episode three. For those of you still here, we know episode three is called The Mountain of Ghosts. The synopsis thankfully has no food in it this time. It says Elliot and Alice go for a hike. Fen gets a haircut. In the preview, it looks as though Fen and Margot are being forced to fight, Hmm. to spar. We don't really know what that's about. And in the midst of that, something attacks Elliot, some kind of creature. This is where I tell you... Maybe it's a taker. Yeah, this is where I tell you I think I found another spoiler online.
1: Oh, no. So
2: it's not a big one, but if you're afraid of that, just give you advanced warning. IMDb lists the characters for the next episode. And there's only two of them up there right now. It's Jade Taylor and someone who's listed as a taker.
1: Oh, there you go.
2: Played by the actor Dorian Kingy. And he's done primarily a lot of stunt work in the past, although some acting mostly in TV shows. So I have a feeling he's going to be a big deal. And this is going to be our...
1: Introduction.
2: Yeah. The real start of the taker storyline. That makes me excited, actually. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Well, that pretty much wraps up this episode. Thank you, Clatchers, for coming along on the ride with us. We are super excited for next week. And we are also excited for our Patreon because this week we will be releasing our movie review, voted on by our Clatchers, Little Women.
2: Yeah, the newest 2019 adaptation done by Greta Gerwig. That's going to be really fun.
1: So Patreon Clatchers, keep an eye out for that. And until next time, this round's on me.
2: This round is on me let oh.